This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, April 14th, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, and a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, in a time to keep silence, in a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be, already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is God's word. Well, thank you for gathering with us this morning. My name is Sam, and that passage probably sounds familiar to some of you. It's been... uh, co-opted by culture and different songs and titles of books, and so uh, it's from the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to pray and ask that God will just move me out of the way and speak what He needs to say despite me. So if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we humbly come into Your presence knowing that in ourselves we don't deserve to be in your presence, but you have made it possible through the sacrifice of your Son. And we stand hidden in Jesus before you, and you delight as a father delights to hear his Son pray. We're gathered here, Lord, because when your people gather together, you're uniquely present with us. And as we go about our days in this life, Lord, it seems like it is so full of noise. 
and so full of chaos and so full of storms and difficulties, Lord. Things that are unpredictable and uncontrollable and that weigh us down. And as those storms rage, Father, we confess that we are tempted to believe that You do not care. We are tempted to believe that You are not in control. We are tempted to believe that what is happening to us is a surprise to You. Lord, I pray that You will help our unbelief this morning. That You'll help us to see not the difficulty of our circumstances, but the greatness of our God. That, Lord, You will become bigger than You are in our lives. That Your ways and Your thoughts will be larger and bigger and, and extremely different than our ways and our thoughts. That we'll see You for who You are, and when we do that, we will see our lives for what is really true. Remind us this morning, Father, that this life is not all there is. Jesus, would You remind us this morning that You are on Your throne, that You are King, that You are Lord of all, that nothing comes to pass without Your permission. Holy Spirit, would You move me out of the way this morning and speak the words You need to speak. Would You take the truths that are difficult in this book and apply them to our hearts. And You make faith, Lord, govern our feelings and govern our thoughts and govern our experiences. Would You help the truth to be the governing force in our lives? Bring us to a place of conviction or comfort wherever we need to be, Holy Spirit. And do the work that only You can do in our hearts. Take us to the cross where everything comes together in one place and we see Your love and Your power and your control, and your beautiful plan there. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. So if you're new with us, welcome. We are working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. We typically go through books of the Bible verse by verse. And this book is one of the most difficult in Scripture. Uh, it's difficult and uh, disturbing and even depressing at times. Uh, though, as I've gone through this in the last few weeks, people have had interesting reactions to it, and they share with me, like, I don't find it depressing, and then someone else is like, I find that totally discouraging. I'm like, that's Ecclesiastes. It's a lot like life. The author of the book describes himself, or is described, as the preacher. And the content of this particular sermon, called Ecclesiastes, I find disturbingly refreshing. And that's because I believe it takes an honest look at life under the sun in search of meaning. I think the preacher actually declares what most of us know but perhaps are afraid to admit. He was a man who had the most power to possess and practice anything he could possibly desire. And yet he concludes, as an old man looking back, speaking particularly to the younger generation, that everything he experienced and everything he achieved was meaningless. That all the greatness that he accomplished proved to be nothing more than chasing after the wind, in his own words. 
you're not sure if that's a productive endeavor, why don't you go chase some wind and find out? He had risen to the top of every possible mountain you can imagine. Mountains of pleasure, mountains of success, mountains of regard and popularity. And yet, when he got to the top of each of those mountains, he said, there's nothing there. He concludes that life apart from God is like a morning vapor, which can be seen and even enjoyed just briefly, but ultimately doesn't have the power to fill the emptiness and eventually fades away. That's Ecclesiastes. And so after a lifetime of seeking self-satisfaction in every playful and practical pleasure we could imagine, Solomon realizes that death brings an end to everything for everyone. It doesn't matter whether you work hard and do everything right or you work hard and do everything wrong. Everyone dies and everything is forgotten. In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17, where we ended a couple weeks ago, the preacher shockingly declares, so I hated life. We go, wow, preacher's even allowed to say that? I hated life. Because what is done under the sun, he said, was grievous to me, for all is vanity or empty and striving after the wind. He concludes that life done under the sun, life done apart from God, is empty. In fact, he says at the very end of chapter 2 that apart from God, who can eat? And who can have any kind of enjoyment? Now, when you read that, like, well, apart from God, who can eat? Who can do anything and delight in it? The implication seems to be, oh, okay, Solomon, so life with God under the sun leads to enjoyment. What you're telling me, Solomon, is that the one who seeks to please God will have an easier more comfortable, pain-free life. That's a lie. That's the lie of the prosperity gospel. If you have faith, everything will go well. If you have faith, it'll all be comfortable. If you have faith, you'll be wealthy, prosperous, popular. If you have faith, you'll just be happy, go lucky, never get sick, everything will go well. But anyone who has been a Christian any amount of time understands that faith in God, relationship with God, doesn't make storms cease. But faith certainly helps us endure the storms that come to everyone. If you think about it, which my job is to give you some of those thoughts you'd never think about, and then when you get them, you're like, I wish you never would have given me that thought to think about because it's screwing up my mind. If you think about this, the perfect life with God was actually lived by Jesus. Our sinless Savior had the perfect relationship with God. He is the example. He is the standard for humanity to live like. And He lived life perfectly. And yet, we cannot forget that the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 describes our Savior as a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. 
hey, wait, wait, wait. So the perfect life will include sorrow? The perfect life will include grief? Maybe Jesus wasn't fit. No, he, we know He was. Perfectly so. Perhaps this perspective of life helps us to understand how and why Solomon could get to a point where he declares, this is why I hated life. In truth, he hates what sin has done to life. Now, sin and the fall of man and rebelling against God hasn't made life meaningless. What it has done is made it kind of difficult for us to find meaning in the life we have. And that's because sin does something to us. It screws us up in terms of worship and our desires. And so creation gets wrongly exchanged for the Creator as the source of life. We look to the wrong things to get the wrong things. Ignoring the great giver, we look at God's gifts and try to get from them what they were never designed to give us. Like Solomon, you know what we try to do is we try to build Eden. We try to build paradise apart from God. And few succeed. And even if a few do succeed in building some kind of paradise, what we see is eventually even the comforts and the pleasures of paradise end up feeling empty and unsatisfying apart from God. Now, life with God under the sun is not about finding comfort. It's about finding meaning even if it is uncomfortable. Hugely important. The meaning of life is not comfort. The goal of life is not comfort. Yeah, sorry. I'll pray with you later. But if you can find meaning, then any kind of discomfort that comes will not shake you. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where we're beginning today, the preacher is is trying to prepare us for something. And what he's preparing us for is the unpredictable but appointed chaos of life. I don't know if you heard that phrase, because if you did, you're not going to like it. The unpredictable but appointed chaos of life. He wants to establish or perhaps correct our expectations of life and maybe even understanding of who God is. So like a military scout on the battlefield, right? He goes out ahead and now he's returned and he's written a warning in the form of Ecclesiastes. This is what to expect from life. And he's going to force us to take an honest look at the different times that life is certain to bring both pleasant and painful. The life isn't an either or, it's a both and. And he's going to instruct us quite clearly that we need to recognize the right time so that we can respond rightly. Always remembering this, that with God, every time 
fits. Nothing is random. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is lost. That's where we're headed. As we read verse 1, we see that the preacher wants us to be able to read and recognize the times that come as a part of normal life, whether you are with God or not. And he wants us to find meaning in those times that are given. So famously, he writes, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. And he begins to list contrasts. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Time. An interesting idea. Life includes time. Creation includes time. Time is itself a creation. Our God is eternal. He lives outside of time. Life itself isn't timeless. We are bound by time as designed by God. In the very beginning, we see in the first chapter of Genesis that God established order and limits in the universe using time. Genesis 1.14 tells us that God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day and the night and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days, and for years. Time was a creation of God. And what we fail to remember sometimes is that all of creation, including mankind, has fallen as a result of sin. It is cursed as a result of sin. And that includes time. But it wasn't always that case. Time was our friend. Time was a good thing at one point. But things have changed. As one writer said so well, now time hollers at us with stress. More often than not, time haunts us. Time pressures us. Time makes us feel our shortcomings. It revels in its misuse and the boredom of life. Time has become, it seems, an enemy. And this makes sense to us if you really think about it because time rarely seems to work for us and often against us. Depending on, I guess, the desires or the needs of the moment, there's either too much time or never enough. Either time is moving too slow or time's moving too fast. And sometimes that's generational, right? If you're older, like, man, time's going too quick. If you're younger, time cannot go fast enough. Either way, time is a plague We're either too early or too late or just plain wrong. And yet time just keeps on running because the world just keeps on rotating. It's amazing how many sci-fi movies are put together about time. 
wanting to stop time, go back in time, go forward in time. Let me control things, and time cannot be controlled. Rarely do we ever get to choose our times, and more often the times choose us, and we have to adjust to them. So the preacher describes life in agricultural terms. Terms that I really don't like. See, Christians, and if you're a Christian, you know this. If you're not a Christian, you know this. There's a body of language that Christians kind of flippantly use a lot. Like call. I feel the God calling me to do this and calling me to do that. And we use it and abuse it to describe or ascribe whatever we want to do. I think God's called me to it when it's worst abused. Sometimes it's used well. Another word is season. I don't like season. It's just a season. But it's in the Bible, so we got to use it here. And Solomon uses it here, and he describes us as farmers who go through seasons. Now, that might be unfamiliar to us. I don't know how many farmers that are, are here, or you grew up in an agricultural context. It would have been very familiar to those reading it when it was written. But the farmer, if you didn't know, has no control over the seasons. Really? No, I, he has none. He can't dictate what season comes. He must rightly read the season that is. In the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher described these cycles of earth, and he didn't like them. He said they were predictable, and they were wearing and he didn't like them. He actually said that a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever going over and over again. There's nothing new under the sun. We know the seasons were created in the very beginning. And they've been the same since the very beginning. And so the farmer has to learn to recognize the season. But more than that, he has to submit to the season. Think about that. The farmer reading the season rightly submitting to that season, and then even planning for the different seasons that are apt to come. A farmer can't fight the weather. He could try, but good luck. And even though there are patterns in the weather that are kind of predictable, like I kind of see where this is going, we know living in the Northwest, that no one can predict the weather perfectly. I always love the snowstorms that come. I remember when the weathermen get on TV and they begin to apologize and tell you how difficult it is to read the weather. You're like, these guys don't know what they're doing at all, right? This is what we normally see, whatever. Now, I bet if you pulled out your phone, you don't need to, but I imagine that you have a weather app on your phone. Now, I love my wife very much, but she loves her weather app. Loves her weather app. I would argue she's addicted to it. She would argue she is not. But I think the first thing that she does, maybe even before she cracks open the Bible, is opens up her weather app to find out what the weather is going to be like. And whatever that shows is like the gospel to her. Whether it's the day, the hour, the week, the 10 days forecast, it's like, this is what's going to happen. And whatever the prediction of that small little application, that governs her day, 
her week, her attitude, everything. I don't understand this. I don't even use weather apps. My weather app is simply this. It's raining today. That's it. And it's amazing to watch my wife react to when the weather is different than the app. And she doesn't know what to do with herself, right? She looks out and she's like, what's going on? It was supposed to be sunny. It's like, well, it was wrong. It, it can't. What am I supposed to think about tomorrow? Can I not trust this? No, you can't trust it, actually. But she doesn't learn. Right? She keeps trusting it and then gets equally bothered when it's or surprised. Like, it was supposed to rain. It's sunny now. My day has just been lifted, right? What we learn pretty easily, even using these apps, is that the weather changes. And they don't care about you. And you can't stop it from changing. But catch this. Especially for farmers. But any unwillingness to surrender to the time or the season is only going to harm the farmer. And those that they love. If they try to fight the weather and do something out of season. The preacher gives us a list of different kinds of seasons in life. It's clear he's not talking about farmers. But if you take the analogy and apply it to life, you go, okay, life has different seasons. If you imagine all the seasons of a farmer, it can be, it'd be scary to imagine all the seasons that life might bring to us. Seasons that you cannot control but are certain to come. There are seasons, as Solomon lays out, kind of two different categories. Seasons that are pleasant. And there are seasons that are painful. And we experience them all. The important thing to remember as Solomon is explaining this is that he's saying both the pleasant and the painful seasons are life. And we often spend our life trying to pursue or avoid one or the other when you can't and you shouldn't. Now, the pleasant times are those that we obviously look forward to. And the ones that Solomon lists here, a time for birth, for new life. A time to plant something new, a time to heal. Who doesn't like that? A time to build, a time to laugh, a time to dance, a time to be together, a time to hug. Those are good times for those who like hugging. For those who don't, that is an unpleasant time you want to avoid. But a time to find, a time to keep, a time to sow, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to enjoy peace. Yes, these are the times that we look forward to, the times that are perhaps easy to enjoy. I'm not sure though, even though they're easy to enjoy, if we actually enjoy them with God or without God. In gratefulness to God or ignoring God because things are easy. But they're also painful seasons, painful times. Ones that we would never choose for ourselves. Ones that we don't look forward to. The painful seasons include times to die. Times to pluck or to prune. I'm not a big fan of pruning. Jesus is, if you read John 15. 
He tends to prune those things that look or are doing well and are fruitful. But when you prune something, it doesn't look real fruitful after you prune it. It looks ugly. It looks painful. And you're like, how could there ever be fruit from that? There's times to break down, times to weep, times to mourn, times to be alone. There are times to tear, times to be silent, times to cast away, times to hate. Like, what? Times to hate? There are times that we ought to hate. God hates at different times, particular things at particular times. If you're not angry at certain things at certain times, there might be something wrong. Times to go to battle, to war. So like physical weather, we see that the weather of our lives change. We may not experience every single season, but we certainly will experience different seasons for as long as we live. And every season brings a different kind of circumstance, and every kind of circumstance requires a different kind of response. Failure to read the season rightly is going to result in doing or saying or thinking the wrong thing in the wrong season. This is maybe difficult for us to personally understand how I would do this, but I think sometimes when someone is going through a difficult season, we can understand it better about what the right or wrong thing is to do for them. Job's a great example. At some point, I'm going to preach Job. It's a really long book, but I'm going to do it in three sermons. I mean, one on Job, one on his friends, and one on God. Job had a life full of pleasant seasons. That's how the book starts. He's got awesome kids. He's got an awesome house. He's got lots of money. He's got respect from the community. Things have been great for Job, blessed for Job, pleasant for Job, And the book of Job describes and records one difficult, painful season. And in the midst of that season, as he loses everything he loved and everything he worked for, as his wife's telling him to curse God and die, his friends show up. And when they first show up, they read the season rightly. And they sit with him and say nothing. They just sit with him. Which at times of great weeping and mourning are often go along with times to be silent and just to be near. But his friends make the mistake of thinking the season may have changed when it hadn't quite yet. And they begin to talk. And they say the wrong thing at the wrong time. They say things, if you will, out of season. And it causes more pain than help. That's what we mean by reading the season rightly. The preacher doesn't teach us that, oh, we're supposed to avoid the pleasant things or unpleasant, painful things and just pursue the pleasant ones. Actually, he's calling us to find meaning in the season that we're in, by embracing the joy that is there or actually by embracing the sorrow that is there and not trying to avoid it. There is nothing gained, to go back to farmer terms, there is nothing gained by trying to harvest in the winter. 
You can't harvest in the winter. You'll do a lot of work. You'll experience a lot of pain from that work, and you will accomplish nothing. You can't harvest in the winter. It reminds me sometimes, um, to make a real simple analogy, when I was young and immature and young married and uh, not as emotional, I find myself as I get older crying at all kinds of things now, and that's just the way it goes, I guess. I didn't think I had tear ducts for many years, and then suddenly it started flowing. And I see my children doing this at times, and it's in those moments where it's really sorrowful, where people get uncomfortable. And you see that sometimes when you watch a sad movie, and I'm not a huge fan of sad movies, right? But I watch a movie, I remember as a young married man with my wife, and she's tearing up at these moments, and instead of me actually maybe weeping with her or experiencing that with her, I look at her and go, <laughs> are you crying? Not the right thing to say, right? It's a great example of like, dude, you did not read that moment right. Or when there's a real serious conversation, someone goes, hey, I got a joke to tell you. You're like, dude, wrong moment. Simple examples, but when you apply that to life, and the seasons that you're, what season am I in right now? What, how am I supposed to respond right now? And how am I supposed to respond to your season right now? Because everything is beautiful, Solomon will say, at the right time. But did you know that everything is ugly at the wrong time? And so, as Solomon continues into verse 9, he has been saying life comes and has its changes, like seasons come and change. And he's warning us, like, don't try to grab onto the season that you don't have. Instead, receive the season that you have. Don't fight it. Because refusing to receive the season is like a farmer trying to farm out of season. Instead of fighting what is, we need to take our eyes actually off the season and all the difficulties or even the pleasantries of it and lift our eyes towards the one who has actually given it. We must learn to worship God as we move through every season and not actually get lost in worshiping the season itself. And you can worship an unpleasant or painful season as much as you can worship a pleasant one. Because what happens is emptiness, and there's lots of reasons for this, but emptiness is perpetuated in our heart. It continues in our heart when we wrongly celebrate the season that was. We talk about, oh man, if it was only like this. Remember when that was like that? It was never as good as then. And you just think about that and dwell on that and you miss the season that you're in. But you can also look forward, right? Instead of celebrating what was, you basically despair over what's probably coming. Oh, I know this is going to get bad. Oh, it's going to get worse. And again, you're missing the season that you're in. This is why Solomon warns us with some of these attitudes. In chapter 7, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes, he say, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not wisdom that you ask this. The former days weren't better. You're distracting yourself from where God has you and what He wants you to learn from that. We must endure, embrace, and at time enjoy the season we are in and respond 
rightly. But we can only respond rightly when we lift our eyes and we begin to perceive the seasons in our lives as God does. That's really hard. Check out verse 9. It says, what gain has the worker from his toil? So he names all these seasons. He's like, what is the point? Verse 10, I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into a man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. These verses are packed. But I just want to point out three important things that Solomon teaches here. First, it says, God has made everything in its time. So, the preacher seems to teach us not that seasons just happen, but that God makes them happen. And I realize when we have the pleasant seasons, that's easier to accept than when we have the painful ones. Both the pleasant and the painful seasons are filtered through the hands of God. They come into your life with His knowledge and His permission. That's hard to believe, but it is true. Every moment under the sun, every season we experience has been fitted by God for His purposes. Solomon will say this in Ecclesiastes 7.14. This is God's inspired word through Solomon, a very broken, wise man. But he says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. What? Prosperity, sure. Okay, yeah, that's thank you, God, for the blessings. Thank you, God, for the pleasures and the pleasantries and the comfort and new birth and new life. Yes, thank you. But adversity? And you fill in the blank and you think of the worst adversity that you had and you're like, no way. No way, God didn't. That was my choices. That's happened like, no, this was not in God's control. This was not in God. I think most of us are theologically unprepared. In other words, we don't don't know who God is. The God we worship isn't often the God of the Bible. He's much smaller. The God of the Bible is huge. The God of the Bible is great and eternal. So most of us are theologically unprepared to respond to the different seasons of life, especially the difficult ones, because we don't know who God is. But Solomon doesn't let off the gas, right? He's like, oh, you want to go? Let's go second gear. And he says, not that just God made everything, but He made everything beautiful in its time. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa! I can maybe get to the place where I accept that God has made everything, but now you're telling me He's made everything beautiful in its time? When we consider the list of painful seasons, that's a really difficult statement to accept. We rightly ask ourselves, how can a time of death be beautiful? 
How can a time of weeping be beautiful? How can a time of loneliness or a time of war ever be beautiful? And so we should not understand beautiful as meaning enjoyable and wonderful and pretty. Rather, we should understand it as meaningful. It's beautiful in its time. It is meaningful. Every season is intentional. Every season is purposeful. Nothing with God is random, wasted, or lost. Nothing. And while we might not like how this feels in the moment, we know this is true. How do we know this is true? Well, this is what Solomon says. The second thing he says in these verses, we know that every season under the sun has meaning beyond the sun because Solomon says, God has put eternity into man's heart. So as we endure and experience these seasons of life, especially the difficult ones, something inside us tells us there must be more. There's got to be more beyond this life. This This can't just be complete meaninglessness. For just as the existence and desire of hunger reveals the existence of food to satisfy that hunger, so the desire to find something meaningful to fill up the emptiness of our souls reveals that there actually is meaning to fill up our souls. This is why Solomon writes in verse 11 that in their search for meaning, the third thing, Man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Did you know, even though we cannot know exactly what God is doing, we do know because of the eternity in our hearts that God is doing something. And that something is telling us that times are not random, they're not unplanned, they're very intentional, they're very linear. There is a beginning and there is an end. There is an end. God is taking us in a direction as individuals and as a people. The seasons God is taking you through in your life, He is taking you in a direction. He is doing something. This is why Paul can write in Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things, pleasant and painful, work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That God is bringing His glorious purposes to pass. Now, I know I say that and everyone has this legal defense team going to their head to explain why that can't possibly be true. This is not the God I worship. Okay, I want you to know, some responsibility to tell you, that the times of our life, every single one of them are governed by the sovereignty of God. And that simply means this, that God's purposes for this world and for your life, every minute detail is unfolding exactly as He has planned every single season. We find that difficult to believe because of this reason. We only see the underside of the tapestry. So if you think about a tapestry, we don't look at, we don't even talk about tapestry. What's a tapestry, right? If you think about a, a, a threaded picture, if you will, that's all we see. The chaos. And we go, 
look at that orange thread in this mess. That has screwed up everything. That can't possibly be intended by anything. It looks like a chaotic mess. That's our perspective. When we're talking about looking from God's perspective, we need to see as God sees, which is really difficult, maybe impossible, unless we're governed by the Word of God. Left to ourselves, that's what we see. And we go, this can't make sense. This is not meaningful. This is ugly. This is undesirable. I would never put this on my wall. I would never desire this for anybody else. I'm sure many of you have heard of a brave woman named Corey Tenboom. She was a death camp survivor and she wrote several books and was a speaker and, and just has an amazing story. And she wrote a poem that some of you may have heard before and maybe this will be the first time. I had never heard it. And it was about this idea of only seeing the underside, only seeing the single threads, only seeing the chaos. This is a woman who experienced a tremendous pain, tremendous loss. So much so that she's looking back going, how could this even be meaningful? This just seemed evil and gross and out of God's hands. She wrote a poem called Life is But a Weaving. It's a beautiful poem. I'll read it to you. It says, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. As you consider some of the unpleasant seasons that have come into your life, or maybe that you're now in, just understanding who God is and how big he is helps you to endure and to maybe even rejoice to know that nothing is random and nothing is wasted and nothing is lost. And if you show that other picture, you see that just looking at the underside tends to give you a pretty twisted picture. And to be honest, that's where we spend most of our time because we're fallen creation. And that's why we have to set our minds on the things that are above and recognize that God is weaving something beautiful, that we wouldn't even believe if you were to tell us, but he has told us. When we perceive as God does, he helps us to respond, and the last verses tell us this in verse 12. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is, the God, that is God's gift to man. I perceived, second thing, that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. 
That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. He talks about two things he has come to understand by what he perceives. He has done his part to describe life as it is, full of pleasant and painful times. And he's made a very clear case that we cannot control the times any more than we can control the weather, but we can control a response to them. If you've read Fellowship of the Ring, you've probably seen the movie. You should read the book. Shame on you. But in Fellowship of the Ring, the main protagonist, Frodo Baggins, is bemoaning the difficult season he finds himself in, of the pain and loss that he's experiencing. And speaking to Gandalf, he says this, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. The preacher tells us to find meaning rather than fight the seasons. He calls us to enjoy the gifts of God as long as we live, whatever season we find ourselves in. Solomon has discovered that he can take pleasure. He can find joy in all that he does when he responds to the right season rightly with God. The ever-changing seasons reveal that we are not in control, and yet we put so much faith in those seasons. And he's calling us to say, stop putting your faith and finding your security and finding your hope and joy in something that is ever and always changing unpredictably. Instead, find your security, your hope, and your joy in the one who never changes, in the God who is eternal and outside of time and who is always good, always gracious, always great, and always generous. He has already said, you're not going to find contentment apart from God. No one can. And this helps us to understand perhaps what Paul was saying when he wrote from prison in Philippians chapter 4, saying, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You know, that verse, that last phrase, I can do all things. People put it on their face and their t-shirts and their shoes and they're like, I'm going to do this marathon. I can do all things through Christ through strength. Fantastic. What it's really talking about is that enduring and learning to endure the seasons that come and having the strength, whether you have plenty or want, whether you have pleasant times or painful times, learning to lean and trust in Jesus as you go through them. The strength to do all things and to respond to the seasons rightly comes from believing in the greatness of God as seen in Jesus Christ. And the preacher writes that whatever God does endures forever. This is one of the last things he says in verse 14. Whatever God does endures forever. You can't stop what God is doing. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing be taken from it. That's a good thing. Why? Because God is good. He is a good, good Father, and He's Almighty God. He is a Father who wants to give you His best, and He's Almighty God who can ensure His best is always given. God's good purposes always comes to pass, despite what the seasons look like. God's promises are always fulfilled. They are always, always good. 
And as we believe this, and as we dwell in this and meditate, we get to the place where Joseph got, right? Joseph, who suffered all kinds of unpleasant, painful seasons as the result of people hurting him, his own family, and at the end of his life, as he is in charge of all Egypt, but his brothers are hoping they don't kill him, they say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. The cross is where we find our confidence to endure the seasons. And I want you to look at the cross a little bit differently. This is not just slapping Jesus on the end to make sure it's a Jesus sermon. I want you to really look at the cross a little bit differently this morning. And perhaps look at the cross as Jesus did, where he looked beyond the cross to the joy on the other side. That's what Hebrews tells us. Even if we cannot control, change, or even understand the seasons we're in, and guess what? You know you can't control, you know you can't change, and maybe you'll understand some of it, but probably not all of it. The cross reveals that if nothing else, wherever you're at, even in that confusing place, that difficult place you cannot control, the cross shows us that it's not meaningless. You see, the disciples, if you think about this, they began this week, Holy Week, with all kinds of great aspirations. They had spent pleasant seasons with Jesus. Three years full of pleasant seasons where Jesus healed and Jesus fed and Jesus raised people from the dead and everyone loved Jesus. And they're going into Jerusalem going, man, this is going to be awesome. He's going to take the throne and we're going to be ruling by his side. It's going to be rad. And then what happened? The weather changed really quickly. And what was pleasant season after pleasant season after pleasant season after pleasant season became the most painful season in human history. And they had a front row seat. And as their king hung there on the cross, who had done all those miracles, and as they hid, lying to people like, I don't know Jesus, I don't know Jesus, their faith was crushed. And maybe just as they did in the storm when they were with the boat going across the sea with Jesus, as things got stormy, maybe they called out to God as they called out to Jesus. Do you even care, God? Are you, not, are you going to do anything about this? Where are you? Don't you love us? Aren't you in control? Jesus is dying. But God was there. God was there in a way that we could never possibly imagine. That's the paradox of the cross, right? It's the darkest and most beautiful moment in history. And though the disciples in that moment didn't understand, they didn't get it, we know that in Christ on that cross, God was present. And God was loving in a way that's unimaginable. And without doubt, God was in control. He was there. As a friend recently said, on the cross, they were all being saved and they didn't even know it. Maybe that's the season you're in. Man, it looks dark. It looks. You believe God's doing something? Will you trust God is doing something? That the seasons we are in have meaning and that Jesus is actually there and he's not just standing there going, hey, good luck. He's actually carrying you through, bringing it to completion as his plan, his perfect, glorious plans unfold. I pray you will not just believe that truth, but you will believe in him 
You will trust Him not just as Savior who saved you from your sins, but you'll trust Him as Lord of all everything. Let's pray.